Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. On this episode of Vince and Jason Save the Nation, a very special guest, the founder of The Daily Caller, joins us and the host of Tucker Carlson Tonight. All ahead on Vince and Jason Save the Nation. Dude, you are the worst human being. I want you This episode is brought to you by Gold Co. Hey guys, welcome back to Vince and Jason Save the Nation. And ladies and gentlemen, he's back. Uh, so Vince, who do we have with us? Well, we've got the one and only Tucker Swanson McNear Carlson joining us uh, from uh, Fox like Royal News Channel. Title there. And of course, the uh, founder of The Daily Caller as well. And always so great to talk to him and uh, great to talk to him on this program as we work to save the nation, because I know Tucker's interested in that topic as well. Tucker, thanks for doing this, man. Oh, guys, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is uh, it's been a fun experiment that Jason and I have been operating here trying to you know, you know, do one of the uh, rare things where like left and right actually talk to each other and see if we can't find some middle ground. Um, and what I find interesting about your program, Tucker, is that uh, you often do this. You try to anyway, you try to bring in uh, people who have very different political views from you uh, yeah. to have conversations. But I've noticed that over time, the show has changed a bit, actually. It used to be that you'd have more arguments with um, Democrat guests uh, but fewer and fewer of those debates are happening. And there's a lot more, there's just kind of like a narrow stable of liberals who are even willing to come on your show and have honest conversations. Well, we got boycotted a couple of years ago um, by members of Congress. We used to have a, a bunch of them who would come on for, I thought, fairly good-natured, illustrative debates, and, and none of them will. Um, we don't have any liberals on the show ever. We have a lot of lefties a lot of sort of sincere, old-fashioned lefty. I mean, Alex Berenson, Glenn Greenwald, Jimmy Dore. You know, these are people, Anya Parmpil, these are people who probably have never voted for the same person I voted for. But we have a lot of overlap in our beliefs. And it, it really is, it's the thing that people have been talking about for 20 years, that the left-right divide is actually not real. Those are not useful categories for describing America. I never really bought that. I, I sort of did think the partisan framework was pretty descriptive of reality. And now it's clear it's not. It's not about Republicans or Democrats, left or right. Are you for the individual, for freedom, or are you for authoritarianism? It's, it's, it's kind of that simple, actually, at this point. So I spend a lot of my personal time talking to people on the other side who aren't actually on the other side. We had Naomi Wolf you know, who I have disliked and criticized for 30 years, one of the founders of modern feminism, um, up to my house a couple of weeks ago to talk about COVID. And Naomi Wolf, I mean, I just, I came away admiring her so thoroughly. I mean, she, she more accurately and articulately and thoughtfully described the moment we're in than like any Republican member of Congress has in the past two years. Like she was amazing. And so, the old debates about lots of other issues seem totally meaningless in the face of what we're looking at right now. Um, so yeah, I mean, my mind has been so completely opened that I honestly don't care what party you're from or how you described yourself 18 months ago. It's irrelevant to me. Yeah. 
So, Tucker, uh, you know, you don't have a lot of leftists also because you don't invite me anymore, but that's okay. That's okay. I got my own show now. So it's all right. Yeah, um, we don't need you. We don't need yeah, you. We don't need busy, you. Dude. I don't need Tucker Carlson tonight. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I have a, a I have a boatload of questions. We probably won't get to it all today. So I Hit hope me, man. that we're we're gonna we're gonna come back to these issues. But uh, my first question is: uh, people like your former colleague at Fox, Bill O'Reilly, pushed the culture of poverty to explain the economic struggles of inner city black and brown communities. You recently seem to distance yourself from that belief. What made you rethink your position? Oh man, this is one of the biggest changes uh, in my thinking period. So for decades, you had to answer the question like why, basically why is there so much crime in black neighborhoods? Cause there is. And you know, why are things so screwed up? And a lot of people looked at this, not just right wingers, most famously Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the Democratic senator and liberal from New York, who wrote a 1965 study on it and came to the conclusion that when families break down, chaos ensues. And that, that seemed right. And so over time, conservative think tanks, conservative intellectuals, and then conservative pundits took up this argument that, you know, things were messed up in Black America because there was a culture of poverty that was abetted by government subsidies that divided families. And there was a lot of truth to that. The part that was untrue was that it was specific to the black community. I could go on for an hour, but just in one sentence, what changed my mind and made me realize that economics had a much greater effect on people's behavior than I ever realized was going to the same town in rural America my whole life and watching the culture change when the jobs left. So basically I, spent my whole life in this town, live in the town half the year still. And I watched as all the jobs went away for a bunch of reasons, but mostly because of trade agreements. And none of the men had full-time employment. Most of the women still did. They worked in hospitals and schools, but the traditionally male, and there's a massive gender divide in work. I mean, no one wants to say it, especially in blue collar work. It's a massive divide. And where I lived, the men all worked in the woods, cutting down trees and sending them to pulp mills to make paper and saw out lumber. And those jobs disappeared. So what happened was men started to make less than women and women didn't want to get married because, I mean, and there's a ton of sociological research on this. Women in general don't want to marry men who make less than they do. So people kept having kids, but they stopped getting married. And all of a sudden you had the same social pathologies, no violence, I will say that is one difference, but you had in general the same social pathologies that you see in the inner city. Like nobody had a dad at home. Lots of people are on drugs. You know, civic associations fall apart. Like all the things that sociologists wrote about the black community for all these generations are turning out to be true in a hundred percent white community. And you're like, oh wait, this is my conclusion anyway. This has to do with economics. If the men can't make enough, families don't form. Like, it's kind of that simple. So this is not an ideological point. It's not a left-right point. It's just like a, it's a true point. So I said that on the air and immediately got attacked by feminist groups. That's not true. Well, it is true. And, and there's a mountain of research to back it up. So yeah. I started to feel like, well, I don't know, like maybe we were a little bit judgy about the Black community, the inner city community, um, because I didn't realize 
that a lot of this behavior, which is bad, I still think that it's bad when you don't have a dad at home. It's bad when your kids are out late at night committing crimes like that. I'm not going to make excuses for that shit. Why would I? But that is driven by forces that people in these neighborhoods can't really control. You know what I mean? Like global trade, like this stuff has an effect on the family structure. Anyway, that's it. It's like a pretty obvious point. But for some reason, no one wants to address it. There was a study that uh, just came out in the last week about uh, the formation of families. uh, And it pointed out this very point, which is that women, the likeliness that they're going to stay in a marriage is is based on the husband's income. And the the likeliness that they're going to get married at all is based on the husband's income. Whereas in the inverse relationship, men don't seem to actually care about the level of income uh, among women when it comes to that connection. And that just seems... You know, again, how many studies do we have to see before you detect that? Okay, well, there's some biological impulse that's associated with this. Well, does anybody talk to women? I mean, I'm surrounded by, I actually like women and I've got a ton of them in my house. Ask any woman, do you want to marry a man who makes less than you or who is shorter than you? I'm sorry, I don't make these rules. I'm not a woman. I'm just like, I ask 10 women. Do you want to marry a dude who makes less than you? And no is the answer. Now, you know, A lot of women do and they have happy marriages and they love their man for who he is. And, the you know, these are generalizations that are not always true because no generalization is always true. But overpopulations, it's very true. And so if you take all the jobs away that men do and you pretend that all jobs are androgynous and like, oh, really, it's we're all the same. We're not all the same. We're very different. Men and women approach work very differently. The sexes are very different. It's biological. By the way, it's the root of so much mystery and beauty and intrigue and it's like it makes life great that the sexes are different but we're run the society's run by people who are so committed to the lie that they're exactly the same that the policies they make aren't consistent with human nature unchanging human nature and it just it destroys people and it's like get off your crazy academic theories and accept the way people really are and then you can serve them that's my opinion Hmm. So I, I don't really get how uh, choices about economics are driven by biology. That I don't I don't agree with. But I think, um, but do you, you think know, the I, women, wait, but hold on. Men have no problem marrying women who make less than them. That's obvious. Yeah, I, I think that think that's socially right. constructed. That's a social well, construction. Is there any country in the world or has there ever been a place in human history where we can say conclusively that men that women are happy to marry men who make less than they do. Has that ever happened? I, I don't think that it has ever. So maybe that suggests there's, some, <laughs> there's something biological at work, no? Or I think it, it could also suggest that uh, patriarchy is something that has existed for centuries and generations. And as long as we can remember that men uh, you know, have made the rules and men have said, you know, have uh, adjusted the narrative in their favor. But I want to ask you. Wait, but can I, ask, can I ask you a question? Like if yeah. something keeps happening in every society on Earth for thousands of years in exactly the mm-hmm. same way, maybe it's not an accident. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying way, men and women are men and women. Uh, Can you think or of any successful, males. happy society that's not a patriarchy ever? Um, you know, honestly, I can tell you that <laughs> men, that patriarchy is so ubiquitous 
that I'm not going to sit here and say that I know of a society that's not patriarchal. I know of all the European societies that school taught us about. Uh, we don't know, just like I'm sure you don't know much about African societies or where, you know, they had people who were trans and gay back in centuries and centuries ago. Uh, you know, we don't know about those societies. We know about the societies we were taught about. And for those, uh, patriarchy has always existed as long as I can remember. And men write the history and write the rules. So Wait, can that's, I ask you, that's all I can where, say. But where I, do men write the I, rules? Have you ever seen a family in which- Are women writing make, history books? No. Uh, like, the man were women writing history rules. books, ten, uh, that, you know, a thousand years ago? Go ahead. I don't know a single man, a married man, who makes all the rules in his house. I don't sure. know a relationship between a man and a woman where the woman is powerless. Right, we've evolved. Every relationship, yeah. <laughs> the idea that women have no power. Absolutely. That I mean, I, that's a theory, but I've never seen that in practice. Like all the relationships I know, happy relationships between a man and a woman, the man is acutely aware of what his wife or girlfriend thinks, wants to please her, Every marriage I'm aware of, the woman makes the majority of the rules. Like, I, I just don't know of any where that's not true. I've never seen it in my life. So, like, this yeah, they, seems, it seems to me like got a limited sample size there, been written by a small number of unmarried, childless, unhappy women like Andrea Dworkin, who extrapolate from their own barren life experience the way <laughs> men get along. But it has no relationship to reality whatsoever. Like, in my family... I have a patriarchal household in which my wife, in effect, makes all the rules. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know who I Andrea Dorkin is, but I want to make sure that she knows that Vincent Jason does not did not uh, endorse no, any kind of insults to her or call her barren or anything like that. Feminism but, is a lie that has been actually used to oppress black men more effectively than any system ever. That's the first thing I would say, but not just black men, all men. Feminism is like actually at its core corporate propaganda, which is pushed by big business in order to lower the value of labor and in order to make the system as convenient and efficient as possible. Okay, all right, Tucker, but it, Tucker, Tucker. But it hurts women, it hurts Tucker, men. Tucker, this is not Tucker is Carlson tonight. This is gonna be Vincent <laughs> Jason. <laughs> so listen, you say, uh, the Democratic Party is looking to replace the current electorate with people from the third world who you deem, quote, more obedient. Yeah. Given that the people of Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras and many other places have fought bloody wars over politics recently, what makes yeah. you believe they'd be more obedient voters? Well, actually, that's a great, such a great question. Um, I would just two parts. One, the, the only purpose of Biden's immigration policy is to change the electorate to make it more likely that Democrats dominate. There's no there's no other justification for it. it the, the more you look at they they say this out loud. This is not a conspiracy theory. It's something the Democratic Party brags about and has for years. Changing demographics will make this country more democratic. They say that their books have been written about it. They're not ashamed of it. I'm just saying what they say. And it's true. But your question is a, is a deep and smart question. Will these voters actually long-term be Democratic voters? Will they do what the academic white liberals who run the Democratic Party want them to do long-term? And actually, I think the answer is no. I think you're right. I think they're, they're, they have no idea who these people are. 
and what they're actually like. So what we're doing is importing a lot of people from the third world who live, and I wish I could think of a different phrase in the third world because it sounds pejorative, I don't mean it that way, but from poorer countries who have far more traditional family structures and far more traditional and conservative attitudes than our leadership has. So like I was talking to a friend of mine the other day whose parents came from Oaxaca, Mexico as laborers. So, you know, this, this hit Latino, I guess would be the term for this guy. And he said to me the other day, he goes, the funny thing is that white liberals import all these people and then immediately call them Latinx or whatever. Why do they do that? Because they are trying to make Latin culture less patriarchal. The Spanish language is a gendered language for a reason. It reflects the culture of Spanish speaking countries. But white liberals bring these people in and imagine that they're all going to be like Oberlin graduates, you know, living in Brooklyn, you know, and drinking artisanal coffee. Actually, no, not at all. So I think long, and you see it in the voting patterns, by the way, in Texas, a lot of self-identified Hispanics are enraged by Biden's border policies. Like they're not into this at all. They're not liberal. In so, so why is so, it that Republicans want to stop immigration in that case? And why are they so nervous about it? Why don't they think they can challenge for those votes? Wouldn't they be wouldn't that be an advantage? Because as we know, demographically, the Republican demographic, the strong Republican demographic is getting older. They're having fewer children. We see that, of course, white people are becoming a smaller group in the United States. So wouldn't Republicans benefit from immigration? I mean, why aren't they the ones that are pushing for it? Well, they, they might. They might. I mean, I can only speak for myself. Doesn't sound like moron, it. And not far. the morons who run the Republican Party. Well, they are pushing for it because they are mostly tools of the business lobby, of the business roundtable in the Chamber of Commerce and have been for generations. So they do whatever their corporate masters tell them to do. I'm looking at it from a different perspective, and I'm against it for three reasons. One, it loosens the labor market in a way that lowers wages. If you have more willing workers, they get paid less. It's super mm -hmm. simple. It's the Bernie Sanders, the Bernie Sanders opposition. Of course, to illegal I've got, it's really a traditionally left-wing, labor-oriented point of view. But it's just true. Yeah. It's just like economics one-on-one. That's the first reason. The second reason is because it is an attack on democracy. You can't pack the electorate just because you don't like an election outcome. the The rule is for all Americans, regardless of their color or ancestry, that one man, one vote. We all have a say in who runs our country. We're in charge of our system. It's called representative democracy, right? That's the whole bargain that we make with our government. But the second you decide, well, I don't really like how you voted. I'm going to bring in new people. You devalue my vote and your vote, Jason Nichols, and your vote, Vince Colonies. You basically water down the political power of American citizens. That's, a, I mean, that's worse than any Russian hacking. Sec that's the second reason. Third reason is just a really simple reason that like wise people understand immediately. This country is too freaking volatile. The our society is coming apart. It's the country has no unifying belief. There's nothing that the majority of Americans have in common anymore. And it's super important that we do or else the country will literally break apart. That's just that's the nature of countries. They don't hold together by accident or because they have a common flag. There has to be a common belief and this endless churn of new people who don't speak the language, who don't understand the traditions, the history, the culture, the but, but Tucker, Tucker, 
Hold it on, you crazy. But Tucker, you just said that a lot of these people have traditional conservative views, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, ca- sure. you know, a lot of people from Latin America are Catholic. You know, fifty-five yeah. percent of Haitians are Roman Catholic. Exactly. You know, you have that. So if they have those values, why you you just again said that they don't have the same values that we have. No, no, so no. So that's no. that's what I'm trying to figure out. Is no, 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 at no, one no, point no, you're, you're saying. You're and I'm, and I'm not, so every time I say this, first of all, they want to say it's some sort of conspiracy theory. Again, I'm just repeating what they've already said and are continuing to say. Washington Post columnist said it last week. So I'm just okay. taking their talking points and, and explaining what they mean. Sure. And I, I'm not attacking the immigrants. By the way, if I was living in Haiti or Salvador or Managua and someone said, I will give you free health care if you come to my country and the doors open, dude, I'd be on the, I'd be on the next train. I mean it. So I totally sympathize with them. I don't blame them. I would do the same thing for my family. I think a lot of them have views that are much closer to mine than Kamala Harris's, for sure. So it's not about attacking them. I I don't feel animus toward them at all. I'm saying there is a shared culture that develops when people live together, even in a continental country the size of ours over centuries, that gives the country cohesion. If you have brand new people showing up, it be, look, if, if you've got children at home, if all of a sudden somebody said, hey, Jason Nichols, you know, you're a pretty famous guy. You make a decent living. You should help the world's children. Here are six more children who are going to be living in your house. They'd be great children. You'd be doing a good thing by helping them. There's nothing immoral about any of that. But what would the effect on your own children be? They'd be like, I don't get to see my dad. Like, it would be a chaotic scene at your breakfast table. Trust me. You know that. I know that. Countries are not so different. If you import a million new people a month who don't speak your language, who have no understanding of your culture, no shared history with the people who already live here, dude, your country's going to get super chaotic. I mean, we went through this 100 years ago. That's why we put an immigration moratorium on the 1920s, like a cooling down period. Let's calm down. We're all Americans. We're closing the borders. doesn't matter if you're Italian or Greek or Polish, Jewish. You know, we're all in this together now. Let's rediscover what unites us. We need a moment like that right now. But even if I we were for it, but even if we were for it, it's just not it's not even being discussed. It's like the consent of the governed is not actually playing a role here. So right. maybe we would be for two million uh, new immigrants crossing the southern border every year, whatever the number is. But nobody's had that discussion. Instead, we have this completely broken system and then are told to shut up about it if we object. Uh, which I don't understand why that needs to be a partisan point unless uh, kind of going back to where we started here, uh, one party thought that it was going to benefit from this arrangement, which it seems that Democrats do. And I think it's interesting that, um, I mean, you frame it well, which is that it's based on what could be a completely broken premise that, well, we're going to import all these people with the hopes that they're going to keep us in power permanently. That may not actually be the case in the end, but a rational country will have- borders and then we will work it out together how many people come in and under what circumstances and actually keep track of that well i think the three of us agree that congress is falling asleep on the job and they're not getting immigration reform done uh the sides need to come together and talk to each other like we're doing here today that's that's one of the big problems um that we're facing i wonder though like what's what's the country going to look like in 20 years So right now, people who grew up in this country, just to name one example, have a gut level understanding that of all the different groups in this country, African-Americans have a very specific historical claim to America's sympathy because alone among all groups, they were brought here by force, right? Enslaved. 
So that's a very different, and, and you could also see Native Americans. But, but as a big population, only African-Americans, descendants of people brought here involuntarily, can say, you know, we're different from everybody else, right? It's not the same. If your parents came from Ghana 20 years ago, it's not the same as if your parents migrated from Mississippi to Chicago in 1925. It's just not. It's very different. And Tariq for all his problems, makes this point a lot, and he's right. But in 20 years, like, no one's going to care. Because the demographics are going to be so completely different in this country that the moral claim that African-Americans have now, and we can argue about what to do about it and reparations, that a good idea? I don't think it is, but, but we could have that conversation. In 20 years, shut up. Nobody cares because things demographically will just be so different. So like if you're Maxine Waters, you are completely screwing the people that you claim to represent. You're like you're just watering down their moral authority, their political power. Like you've sold them out like way more than Candace Owens ever even thought of doing. So so it's how like is she amazing how, that this is happening? But Tucker, how how exactly is she selling them out? I'm I'm just by by curious. pushing for higher immigration levels. Like because at a certain point just as a math look this is democracy so it's about math. How big okay. a percentage of the population do you represent? You know, I, I stand up and I say, I represent this group of people, whether it's a labor union or an ethnic group. And if it's big enough, people have to listen to me because I can turn election results. If you change the demographics, I'm just saying African-Americans have this, of course, I mean, it's our whole national conversation is based on this idea. Have this, this claim that's different from anyone else's claim. It is very different from the claim. I know this, this whole like people of color thing, which is like ludicrous. No, it's not about people of color, everyone who's not white. That's like ridiculous. It's about African-Americans specifically. We fought a civil war over this. It's a, it's a very, it's a unique position in American mm -hmm. history. And when you change, moving a million or 50 million Africans into this country is not the same as empowering African-Americans. Well, look at the political, look at the political blocks. block right so, now. One, one, one second, look at the political block right now. Black votes are determinative in American elections. So right. if black voters show up and they have a candidate preference, there's a high likeliness that that person wins. If black voters do not show up, there's a high likeliness that the person who was most likely to get black votes loses. So and we've seen that we saw that in the 2016 election and we see it. We saw it in 2020. And you can just keep totally looking right. back throughout history over time. If the current 13 percent of the population that is black is watered down to 8 percent, all of a sudden the math changes pretty dramatically, actually, about how black issues specifically. Well, you're saying African-American, not black, because if you well, exactly import, no, that's if, because not everyone who looks the same is the same. Nigerian right. No, 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 no. that's true. But over time, Nigerian immigrants make more than native born white Americans. They have higher education levels. They're not liberal. They have a totally yeah, different. No, no. Hey, you live in you live in D.C. You know, we have a massive Ethiopian and Eritrean population there. They've been I think they're great. They've had a super successful immigrant experience. Their concerns as voters could not be farther from the concerns of African-Americans whose family came up from North Carolina in 1930. Yeah, but, I, but here's the thing that, that you guys are missing. And, and I, I think that there, that is a good point. And, um, you know, Tariq Nasheed, for all of his issues, uh, he calls African-Americans foundational, found, was it foundational Black Americans or something like yeah. that. But I can tell you that what happens with generations, particularly once they start to see 
institutional racism. While you're talking about immigration being an issue for African-Americans, the real issue in terms of employment and other things is institutional racism. It's not really uh, immigration. But what happens is, and I see this as, as a college you know, professor, a college uh, teacher, a lot of times, first generation, there, you know, there's a lot of difference. But then the subsequent generations, they start to meld cultures and they start to come together. Some of my ancestors came from the Caribbean. It starts to become, okay, now I'm a black American. Yes, my grandfather's Nigerian or yes, my mother's Airtran, but I, now I am united by some of the issues that African-Americans yeah. face because well, when people look at me, I'm not I'm not discernibly well, different. Can, can I just right. say, Jason, Jason, you're kind of making an argument for moderate immigration. So in order for the country to do what you're saying, to be that melting pot, you can't bring in massive amounts of new people on top of yeah, that. I, I don't time. think I ever argued for massive immigration. I'm just saying well, that's well, right. oh, the only thing that I was saying is that immigration is not the obstacle that I think Tucker is making it say making it seem like for African Americans and progress and things like economics. That's well, that's the only argument the that game, I'm making. The game is really simple. The game is you invite all these people in and you say you don't have that much in common, you know, linguistically, culturally, historically, but we can all be mad at white people, institutional racism. We're all united against white people because white people have all the power. That's the argument that they're making. That's what people of color means. It's everyone who's not white, obviously. So the only group that is not in the protected class is white men. And the idea is white men have all the power, therefore we're all united against them. And that kind of works right now for some, I don't think it works that well with Hispanics actually, but it kind of works with different groups, but that is absolutely the play, obviously. I mean, obviously. Will that work 20 years from now when white men actually aren't really in charge of anything and aren't the majority and like, I don't think that's a, a, a durable, or, first of all, it's a racist principle. It's totally immoral and grotesque, but leaving aside that, I don't think it works. I don't think it's a durable unifying principle. At some point people are gonna be like, okay, yeah, white people bad, got it. Institutional racism, I'm against the whites. But like, yeah, I, I, th I think actually, again, we're in competition with each other too. Like that's, come on, tribalism is a dead end. It only ends in Rwanda and Yugoslavia. It is, we should drop it immediately. No more reference. I, I think African-Americans probably could get a carve out just because of the history. But everybody else, you show up in this country and you're like, I'm a proud, this ethnic group? No, shut up, you're an American. And if you don't identify as an American, first and foremost, don't come here. Like you have to have a national unifying principle that's non-racial, that's non-ethnic. Otherwise you're just gonna have war. So let me, let me just say, uh, you mentioned war and you mentioned a few other things. Uh, a lot of the people that made the T-shirt that I'm wearing right now actually went to war. This, this is made by veterans at Grunt Style. So everybody, if you love this T-shirt, go out, go to GruntStyle.com. Definitely I get this T-shirt. Thank you so much, Tucker. Yeah, with my with my Freegal here. Yeah. Uh, because I am a proud American, but I also acknowledge the fact that I'm an African-American and I think that's a beautiful thing. And yeah. I think it's okay if you're Nigerian-American, if you're Eritrean-American, you're yep. still an American and you can still love your cultural heritage. And I know that the Colonnaises invited me over for uh, pasta. 
Yes. Because they are proud of their Italian heritage, but they're Sunday good night. Americans at the same time. Every Sunday night. That's right, Tucker. No, we, uh, by the way, just so people know, Grunt Style, of course, supports our great show. And uh, you can support them by going to gruntstyle.com and get 10% off with the promo code STN. That's save the nation. Uh, so thank you, Jason Nichols, for, for plugging the great people at Grunt Style. Okay, so I have a question. Um, man, I have so many questions, but... Uh, <laughs> You express in Ship of Fools your distaste for racially exclusive spaces. So I think this kind of goes along with what you were saying. Um, however, in a piece you wrote in 1996 for City Journal, you extol the virtues and economic value of the Shaw District of Washington, D.C., pre-civil rights because Black people yeah. exclusively supported institutions and businesses run by Black people, which created successful, a successful Black business class. Have your views changed over the last 25 years? If so, why? It's, I can't believe you read that piece. It's so funny you mentioned that. Um, that so piece. actually that began in, you know, five years earlier, around 91 or 92, I did a piece on Dunbar High School in Washington, DC, which was one of the best high schools. It was like up there with Andover for the number of people who went to Harvard every year. It was an all black high school called Dunbar. Mm -hmm. And it was an amazing school. And like, how did this happen? So I dug into it. I interviewed a bunch of people. I got a book contract to write about it and to write about Black Washington and the Shaw, in, as you said, the Shaw part of Washington, which there was a, they had a Black-owned bank and hotels. And it was a, kind of an amazing community. And so I was like, wow, this is really cool. So I, because Washington at the time was like really bad. And the Black, you lived there, the Black neighborhoods were very tough. And like, but it wasn't always this way. What was different? So I got a book contract with Free Press to write this book. And I started interviewing people, old black people in DC, dentists and people, you know, worked for the schools and like, you know, upstanding middle-class, upper middle-class citizens. And probably 80% of them looked at me in the face and said, well, you know, the problem is integration. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that is too much. Like my brain couldn't, you know, I'm a I'm a white guy from a white, like I couldn't, I couldn't handle that. Like I'm against segregation. I grew up believing, I still believe it's immoral. And so when successful black people in their seventies or eighties looked me right in the face and said, integration destroyed our community. Like I just couldn't even handle it. It was just, it was, I'm just being as honest as I can be. I canceled the book contract. I don't want to write that book. I don't, I'm not quite sure what to make of this, but, um, I mean, I guess I opened, the last thing I'll say, I opened by saying people should get over their ideology and just accept reality as we find it, for example, in the way that men and women get along. But this is a case where I just couldn't get over my ideology. I mean, I grew up being taught and believing, reading Dr. Seuss books and believing that segregation was, was really immoral. I still think that. So for people to, they weren't endorsing segregation exactly, but they were saying integration just really hurt us. That's what they said. And I don't know, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? I kind of like, I, I don't want anything to do with this at this point. It was just too hot for me. I couldn't handle it. And I actually haven't really thought about it much since because it freaked me out too much. You know, um, I'll just say there were communities like Shaw around the country, of course, in Tulsa and in other places. Yes. And what happened? White folks came in and burned them down and sometimes flooded them, killed people, that, that's, that's flooded bullshit, them actually. and made man-made lakes. That's a lot. That's a lie. What you no, that's that's, that's absolutely true. It, it's not what happened in Washington, D.C. No, it didn't Washington, happen in Washington, D.C. I didn't say that. Who who burned and, that neighborhood in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, I, young black people burned it in 1968, burned a lot of the city. Sure, after, after the because people killed Dr. King. But OK, but I'm, but I'm they, saying no, but in other parts of the country, what, what happened in Tulsa? 
Well, I mean, Black Wall Street. Race right. Okay, got it. But in Washington, yeah. D.C., which in was the many biggest, places around the country. Go okay. ahead. I can only the city that I spent most of my life in, I know well. Mm-hmm. And that's not what happened there. And right. so, again, I, I, I'm not I don't know what to make of it. Like, I'm not for segregation. And it's coming back. Clearly, Harvard has segregated graduation ceremonies. I'm totally opposed to that. I think you should judge people by what they do, what they believe, who they are as individuals, not as members of ethnic groups. I just, I really believe that. But I got to say, this history, the deeper you get into it and the more honest you are about it is, is very complicated. It's not simple at all. It's not as simple as whitey's bad. That's just bullshit. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, whitey may be bad, but there's a lot more going on. Than just what but if but if you're talking to like old black guys in the early 90s, mm-hmm. you know, you think they're not that many generations removed. They're not any generation removed from Jim Crow laws. Uh, oh, and no, no. So so like it kind of makes sense that like they're carrying that remnant and thinking, well, like, you know, look what integration wrought, you know, in the past. Look what, it, you know, look how I've been treated because of the color of my skin. I'd rather spend time with my own people who I know where, where I know I'm going to be treated well and, and where we'll treat each other well. It, it doesn't surprise me. I just feel like as a country, like you talk about like kind of America's unifying principles, you got to imagine kind of what Jason Nichols said a few moments ago, that as the generations pass, that sort of um, preference for segregation will it's hopefully itself collapse because um, because we will find more commonality with one another that goes well beyond sort of the skin deep assessments that people have made in the past. I hope so. I mean, I just don't see anyone encouraged. I mean, I think it's this, look, it's a multiracial, multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-religious society. Like the society is as diverse as any big society has ever been in history, more than Rome even. And so that's a fact. We have to learn to live together and picking the wound, inflaming the hatred between racial groups, no matter who is doing it, is a dead end. It's totally wrong. It's you people have to believe that the most important thing about them as a civic matter is their nationality, not their ethnicity. And if they don't believe that, I'm just telling you, this is not a partisan point. It's a super obvious point. It's going to be really, really bad. And so I think it's reckless. You, you should always be honest about the, about the past, I think. Honest about what happened in Tulsa. Honest about what happened in Washington. The closer you look at history, the less noble everyone looks. I mean, that's true as someone who studied it all my life. Like the more you know, the more confusing and multi-layered and complex it is always. But we should be honest about it, of course. But to elevate our racial differences to the top of concerns and be like, that's the most important thing. This person doesn't look like you, Kim. Like if you do that over time, especially starting in like first grade, which we are doing, what does it look like 20 years later? Man, it just looks, it's unimaginably bad. And I just don't know why we're doing that. I mean, I know why we're doing it, but I think we should stop immediately before it's too late. I really believe that in my heart. Okay, so I I have a question here about Fox News. Um, Yeah. (laughs) You said Fox News has no vaccine mandate. But according to Newsweek, the company requires unvaccinated employees to submit to daily COVID testing, which is stricter than Biden's mandate, which calls for weekly testing for businesses that employ more than 100 people. Is Fox News denying the civil liberties uh, of its employees by being stricter than President Biden? I don't know. I mean, you should probably ask Newsweek. It sounds like they got a pretty precise handle on what's happening. <laughs> yeah, I, hey, if, if it's wrong, off. let me know. If, if I'm wrong. 
Yes, yeah, it's 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 completely wrong, as I noted okay. the other night. Fair. Um, I'm not, you know. So what is the policy? Can, I'm not can you tell us the policy? to speak for the company um, okay. on this because I don't run the company and I'm not, you know, I'm just an employee of the company. Um, okay. My personal preference is that Fox News would, you know, make a statement about what its policies are. But I think like a lot of companies um, you know, they're hesitant to do that because like, why would you even want to get involved in that conversation? Here's the bottom line. You know, there are a lot of infectious diseases out there, a lot, and a lot with much higher mortality rates than COVID-19. And, you know, there's, there's HIV, of course, there's tuberculosis, of course, there are a bunch of different varieties of hepatitis, which have killed many hundreds of thousands of Americans over the years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And employers are not empowered. In fact, they're not allowed to ask employees what their status is. Are you HIV positive? Really? Can you be tested? Should we test people based on their sexual? But practice? HIV isn't a communicable disease in the same way. Like you oh, can't really? you can't sneeze on somebody and give them HIV. HIV least... has killed has killed tens of millions. Oh yeah, of no, I, I don't. World I don't doubt that. Years. But you can't. And it's it not a communicable very... disease in the same way. You have to. Have sex or share blood, correct? Well, sure. At which point right, but you that, transmit it, so it is by definition communicable. Yeah, and but it's not in I, a, looking, communicable I'm, in the same I'm, way. That, that's my point. Just to be clear, I am totally opposed to asking anybody his HIV status at work. I'm totally right. opposed to asking his prostate cancer status or what his you know latest blood sugar levels are. I mean, we have HIPAA laws for a reason. So I'm hired to do a job. And if by contract, I fail to perform that job, you can fire me. But my contract does not include sharing my intimate medical history with my employer or the federal government. So, so you wouldn't, per, you, you my wouldn't personal, be. My personal view, is absolutely not. If someone asked mm -hmm. me, have you had the vaccine? Are you circumcised would be my response. What's your favorite sexual position? How, how often do you have sexual relations with your wife? And Tucker, I'll, I'll answer all those questions for you if you'd like. Jason's an oversharer. You are a star. Yeah. Jason. Um, That's why I love but, you. But I'm just saying. <laughs> okay, you got me there. But uh, the point is, no, please don't, please don't, no, please. <laughs> but no, but my I, point is, like, these are two, and I'm not, I'm not participating in the system. Period. Ever. Mm -hmm. But but again, my my thing is. If it were, I think HIV is one thing, prostate cancer is, is another thing. But when we're talking about something that can be spread in the way that COVID can or tuberculosis, if someone comes in, if your producer comes in and they have tuberculosis and they're coughing mm -hmm. all over the place, you know, you wouldn't be upset if they didn't disclose the fact that they had TB oh, or be. take. I would be. I would be very upset. I would be very upset. I was upset when. California legalized the willful transmission of HIV by deceit to another person. It's now legal in California. It's not a crime to infect someone on purpose with HIV. So I was upset by that. Look, I don't think you should spread communicable diseases. I think it's immoral and it's totally wrong. But in the context of COVID-19, there's a variable that we're not acknowledging, and that's the vaccines. So all of us are required, we have been told, to get the vaccines because the vaccines work. They will save us from infection, from transmission, and from death. So if we believe that's true, and a lot of people do believe it's true because 
they don't read, they don't read, then tell me why if the vaccines work, you should be concerned about my COVID status. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly baffled. Like if you're worried about COVID, you can get a vaccine. And if the vaccines work, that should kind of end the conversation, right? So, what am I missing here? So let, let me, me let me ask. Let, I got to jump just in ask here. One okay. question. All right, I'm, uh, I'm just going to be your spectator then. I'm gonna no, watch no, 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 no. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Just let me ask this one question. So you, you're okay. You said, uh, you know, communicable diseases should not be spread, and you were okay with California criminalizing uh, the, you know, spreading HIV. No, 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 no. Let me just be precise. The intent is, no, you should not criminalize the spread of diseases. You uh -huh. should criminalize the intentional spread of diseases. Typhoid Mary was a food service worker in New York City who knowingly spread typhoid to the people she was cooking for. She did it on purpose. And for that, she was in prison. Like you can't right. intentionally hurt people. It's just super simple point of law. And, and in California, I don't think if someone spreads HIV, he shouldn't be prosecuted for that. But if you intentionally spread HIVs, I'm going to infect So what if, what, if you are, what if you are undetectable and you have unprotected sex? Um, no, but intent is the, intent is okay. the point. So, um, okay. That's yeah, a fair, that's, that's, that's a right, fair. Yeah, so um, that, that's, it. that's all I'm saying. Look, my only point is, if you're worried about COVID, get the vaccine. They work. You don't need to worry about whether I've had the vaccine because if you if if you're concerned, you can get it. So right. what am I missing? Honestly, like what am I? Just the logic chain seems to fall apart. Like where have I gone off the rails as a linear thinker here? What so am I missing? I I, I want to move to the to the CDC and its power, Tucker. You know, I I was one of the things that I learned during the pandemic is that the government doesn't need to explicitly mandate something for it to become a mandate. So the CDC routine, like throughout the pandemic, would release guidance or Anthony Fauci would go on TV and say what he believed. And then instantly I saw corporate America snap to attention, like whatever he says or whatever the CDC says, they instantly do. And then they enforce on their their employees. Or we saw this at the level of cities or states. I mean, what have you what have you learned about sort of this intersection between all of our institutions and the government, even when the government doesn't explicitly mandate uh, actions, but people do whatever the government says anyway? Well, sure, because institutions act in their own best interests. I mean, in the case of publicly held companies, they have, as they often tell us, a fiduciary responsibility to do that. And they understand that the government is more powerful than it's ever been. It spends more money than it ever has. It has more regulatory power than it's ever had. And so, you know, you mess with the government, you're going to be punished. And so if the government expresses a strong preference for something, you'd be pretty unwise to ignore that, right? It doesn't have to be codified in law passed by Congress or in an executive order signed by the president. It just has to be expressed, like, you'd better do this. And we, you know, we have ways of hurting you if you don't. Like, everyone gets the game. If you want to know who has power, take three steps back and take a look at who everyone's ass is being, you know, who, whose ass is getting kissed, right? And so Joe Biden, who's, you know, we're leaving aside what Biden's like personally, but Biden says something and people do it. Well, that's, that's what power looks like. So of course. Yeah. So T Tucker, <clears throat> David Duke called you, quote, <laughs> one of the voices we have inside the media, end quote. Uh -huh. Your commentary has been praised by V. Dare, and other uh -huh. white supremacists. Wait, didn't David sites. Duke? Wait, didn't David the, Duke vote for Biden? I don't know who he voted for. <laughs> but I, I, 
I think either way, I, I just I, I think I'm pretty sure David Duke, who I've never met and know very little about, I'm almost positive he works for the FBI. Yeah, he probably with, does. I agree with that. Of course he does. <laughs> right. So, I, so, I'm, I'm not so, saying that. So, so here's the point. I believe in colorblindness. I believe in the meritocracy. I believe in judging people by what they do, what mm -hmm. they believe, who they are as individuals. I strongly believe that it's one of my deepest and most sincerely held beliefs. I've articulated that hundreds of times on television and in private with my children, for example. I really believe that. If that is a white supremacist belief, you know, I, then I guess words have no meaning. Language is is, is not actually an instrument I'm we use so to Tucker. convey ideas. <laughs> I wasn't going to call you a white supremacist. No, I'm just saying this whole thing is like if they call you a white supremacist. For quoting Martin Luther King, they probably don't really mean it. I guess that's so. My my question is, why do but the white supremacists think you're a white supremacist? That that's all I'm saying. So I'm wondering, well, I, I, why is it that they see you as an ally? So, you I, know, I, I can sincerely say I've never met a white supremacist. Mm -hmm. I don't know what they think, but if you're going to David Duke to figure out what's true in America, I would suggest you get new sources. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I'm, I I'm not. People are like I'm, citing David Duke. Like, what's reality? I don't know. Let's check with David Duke. Maybe he knows. Yeah, I mean, it's David Duke, the, the Daily Stormer, V Day. I love they, that. I for love some that. reason, they they see you as an ally, and I'm just like, I, I, I don't. I've never I, look. My views are absolutely transparent. I'm paid to express them. Mm -hmm. I faithfully do that, and my views on race have not changed since I was a small child growing up in California. You judge people for who they are and what they do. My personal life reflects that belief. And I think what we're seeing is a redefinition of what racism is. So if racism is saying we should judge people for what they do rather than how they were born, yeah. then the term doesn't have any meaning anymore. It's just, we're, it's just it, all it is is a weapon used by a political party to gain power. Okay. I mean, I think people can see that, by the way. When I was first called a white supremacist five years ago, when I took the show over, I'll be honest, like I was completely shocked by it and horrified. I have a lot of views that are probably not mainstream. My views on gender, on the patriarchy, for example, are probably controversial with like most college professors. But my views on race are like not controversial at all or weren't in the country I grew up in. They were like totally commonplace, ordinary, sort of like basic liberal, like we should all just get along and like judge people for who they are. God created all of us. I'm a Christian, so I actually believe that. When they call me white supremacist, they're like, holy shit, a white supremacist is like the worst thing you can be. And after a couple of years of being called by that, that name, I decided the people calling me that don't mean it at all. It's just, a, it's an instrument to shut me up because I call bullshit on them. They want to make me be quiet. And over time, like if you over if you overuse an attack that's insincere, it has it's not effective anymore. Yeah. And I think I think that's where they are, honestly. But meanwhile, th these sorts of vile attacks on you have led to people having and deeply distorted views of who you are and what you represent. And obviously, these are the type of people who don't actually watch you on a nightly right. basis. They don't see what you're saying on your show, but they're they're being fed a caricature and then responding to you in real life on that basis. We saw a video of you this past year get confronted in a, a fly fishing shop by that guy in Montana who was up in your face and yelling at you. I, one of your kids, I believe, was present. I don't care, man. Okay, dude, you are the worst human being. I, I want you to, to this 
States, to the United States, to everything else in this world, I don't care that you know you're What you have done to people's families, what you have done to everybody else in this world. Don't what is that? How frequently does that happen now? And has that has that increased in frequency? Well, I mean, look, I, you know, what you do without answering your question, um, because look, what you don't want to do if you're me or anybody who's involved in a public debate is become bitter and self-pitying. Right. And bitterness grows from self-pity. In fact, all unhappiness grows from self-pity. You know, you can get a stage four cancer diagnosis and remain optimistic and cheerful, not because you know you're going to live forever. You're not. You're going to die. But because you see meaning in your life and you see beauty around you and you see, you know, fulfillment in your relationships with the people. And like the only thing that ever destroys you as a person is self-pity. And once you understand that, like you take all available steps to avoid self-pity, period. And so in my case, like, you know, that's my daily struggle is not to be self-pitying. You know, so much has changed. I'm unfairly, they're calling me a white supremacist. They're, you know, people are yelling at me in front of my children. I can't go out to dinner. I'm like housebound. Okay. On the other hand, that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is I get to say what I think. I have really strong and strengthening relationships with my family and a, and a lot of close friends and like my staff. I really have a rich, happy life. Yes. And so I focus on that. But one thing you see among talk show hosts, you know, a, a, a television executive, a high level television executive once said to me years ago, he goes, what do you think my job is? And I said, oh, running a TV network. And he goes, no, keeping millionaires from killing themselves. That's exactly what he said. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, you will never meet an unhappier group of people than television anchors. They're making these ridiculous salaries. They have their own planes, like this, the life that everyone wants. And they're on the verge of suicide. And I was like, why is that so interesting and bizarre? Why is that? And he goes, because they, all they do is think about themselves. And once you start thinking about yourself too much, you inevitably become self-pitying. And once you become self-pitying, you're done. Your, your yeah. vital strength ebbs away. Yeah. And you become... Yeah just a, 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 an angry husk. And so like, I, don't, I don't want to become that. I, I respect that. And I, and I get uh, why you're, you're not super interested in engaging on this topic, because obviously you don't want to engage in self-pity. But I think for like the audience, for us, for me, for Jason, I think it is interesting to find out like, you know, what, what are the consequences of saying true things out loud? You know what I mean? Like what is, and especially if you threaten institutions that have a lot of power as you do so frequently, I mean, I, I think people do want to know like, what is that? What, what happens? I mean, I, I know, you know, I've known you for years. Well, I let know, me let, let look at the backdrop behind become more complicated. Look, look at the backdrop. I know you've been in the room I'm standing in now, Vince. So, you know, please don't be more specific than that. But you can probably tell from the decor that I am not like I'm so far away physically. <laughs> I live a life that's so remote and weird and removed from everything um, and that's a direct consequence. You know, I spent my whole life living in a city right on the street, you know, right. in Washington, and I can't live that way anymore. And so I would say for me, the daily, and I have a wonderful life and I, I have a really happy marriage and that has made all the difference because it always does. But I spent my whole life trying to make certain that I don't become isolated. Like I spent all day talking to people all day. I mean, like eight hours talking to various people from around the country, various, I mean, I, I'm not kidding. I really do do that every day. 
Yeah. And I have to do that because I don't come into contact with anybody like at all, because I, 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 you know, I'm again, I'm not whining in any way, but I'm just saying like the weirdness of my life. Yes. Weird is the wrong word, but the, it's, it's not typical at all. And I just, I have no choice. So that's what I do, but I don't feel, I actually don't feel cut off from American society or from people just because I really try not to be. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, I have Jason's so many got, more I, questions I, that I know. I can just sense it. Wait, I can sense it. I just feel another Jason doozy coming. Yeah, no, I, I have a bunch of doozies. Um, <laughs> and I know we're not going to have time to fit them all in. And it's like, it's literally tearing me apart inside. Um, but I, I first, I, I think I want to get this, this question out here. I'm, I'm actually going to make this like a several part question. Um, and this isn't my in favorite. my list. Um, First okay, of me, all, let me, let me put on the sexy glasses just so all I right. can. <laughs> you're okay. walking, you're walking down the street. Yeah. In a dark alley. Yeah. You see a figure in the distance. <laughs> that figure gets closer and closer. It's Angelo Carasone. What happens next? I would pass right by without recognizing him. Because <laughs> I have no idea what he looks like. But I have to say, um, he's like a media mat. Is he Media Matters or some mm-hmm. some group that's trying to deplatform me? Silence me, whatever. Um, I've never met the guy. I've never talked to him. You know, a couple times in my life, I've bumped into physically bumped into people who are like, you know, obsessed with attacking me or whatever. <laughs> I always enjoy it. I don't have any problem with confrontation. Of course, that's what I do for a living or did before they boycotted me. Um, but. A hundred percent of the time I have found that when you really meet people who are like making a living, describing you as a white supremacist or a Nazi or some, you know, as a monster, they're very like confrontationally avoidant. Like they don't want to engage with you at all. It completely freaks them out. I mean, this is why the, one of the reasons the internet has has really destroyed America much more than any other factor is Mm -hmm. that people don't have to deal with each other face to face and that liberates them to be their worst self. So it's like really easy to call for someone's death. If you've never met him, it's much harder if he lives next door to you. So also it kind of suggests that you don't believe it either. Like if, if you believed it to your bones, like whatever that, whatever that principle was that was guiding you, like you'd be willing to confront that person, right? Like you'd be willing, this is my chance. I should say it, but they don't in, in this, in the scenario you're talking about, because like, honestly, like most of them are just mercenaries. I, re- I remember that like uh, years ago, uh, Tuck, I remember that there was a, just one more, I just want to make ahead, this one point. Years ago, there was a guy who worked for Media Matters who applied for a job at the Daily Caller. <laughs> he wanted to be a reporter. Remember this? I think it was, it was Joe Strupp. Was that his name? He like, oh yeah, Joe Strupp. He like applied to be a Daily Caller reporter. And then eventually he found a job at Media Matters. He didn't get the job at the Daily Caller. He eventually got a job at Media Matters. And then like, he like reached out years later for comment on something, which was like one of the only times that Media Matters had attempted an act of journalism. Yes. And and I, as I recall, you sent him back his job application, <laughs> which- Well, I didn't, he was like so many people in journalism, he just wasn't very talented. He was kind of dumb, as I remember. Joe Strupp, I remember that. He was just yeah. mediocre, you know? And that's kind of the problem with journalism. Let me just say, I don't know Joe Strzok. Joe Strzok, if you're out there, <laughs> I have no issues No, I mean, I, Joe, look, I'm not against <laughs> Joe Strzok. It's just, it's just sad. Like, I think the American media plays a really important role in our democracy and our culture. And it's just, it's just 
kind of depressing when you know everyone who's in it and you realize there are like almost no smart people in it. Like everyone is just a follower and just kind of a sad wage slave, you know, saying what they need to say to please their masters at Google. It's like, there are no independent thinkers or artists or, you know, no one interesting. None of them are interesting. It's so weird. When I started, when I was a kid and my dad did it and I sort of grew up in the media world, there were a ton of interesting, unconventional people. A lot of them, by the way, were lefties. A lot, most were lefties, but they were like, they had all these ideas that were, you know, that challenged the way things were and they were personally eccentric and interesting. Now everyone is just exactly a, a sad carbon copy of everybody else. Ugh. Yeah. But by the way, I know Jason wants to ask another question. So let me just mention real quick that the reason we can ask these great questions of Tucker Carlson is we're supported by the great folks over at Gold Co. Thank you to Gold Co. for oh, sponsoring. Yeah. Vincent Jason saved the nation. All right, Jason Nichols, go ahead, sir. All right. So you said once immigrants make this country poorer and dirtier. Uh, however, research shows that immigrants fill gaps in the economy. They start businesses at twice the rate of native born Americans. 45% of Fortune 500 companies were founded by immigrants. Uh, they support American entitlements like Social Security. And in 2016, immigrants added $2 trillion to the GDP and $458 billion in tax revenue in 2018. They also spend $1.2 trillion in local economies across the country. The University of Wisconsin researchers also found that U.S. <laughs> citizens were twice as likely to be arrested for violent fel felonies and four times as likely to be arrested for property crimes than undocumented immigrants. Oh. Could we surmise from that data that immigrants actually make us richer and cleaner? Oh, yeah, mm, for sure. Uh, the why even have I mean, American citizens suck, it sounds like. No, why, I didn't say that. I just said immigrants are good. Why not just well, look, everything you said points to the attitude that we began this conversation with, which is immigrants are way more impressive than people who voted for Donald Trump or dying of fentanyl in some hollowed out. I didn't even tent. mention Donald Trump. No, no, no. <laughs> no. But I'm just saying this. No, I'm not talking about you, but this is the attitude behind our immigration policy. We've given up on the people who were born here, very much including African-Americans, totally given up, totally given up, despite all the all the noise about Black Lives Matter or whatever, like the schools are like, they're ridiculous, actually. They're ridiculous. People dying and by the thousands of gunshots, nobody cares. So we've clearly given up on people at the bottom of American society of all colors. And the hope is that we're going to import our way out of this. And I feel like that if your kids were acting up and you're like, this like i'm not going to spend any time trying to help my kids get through their problems in like eighth grade when most kids have problems i'm just going to adopt some more kids who are more impressive than the kids i already had what message would that send to your kids it'd be like dad doesn't care because dad doesn't care actually that's the truth so there's that on the dirtier thing i was speaking specifically about litter which is a huge problem in this country and one of my personal passions is the outdoors. I'm a hunter and a fisherman. I live in a really rural area. I really care about nature and I mean it. And because it's this, it's the one irreplaceable thing. It, and it, by the way, it's more beautiful than anything man has ever created. It's prettier than any building. I mean, if you can see what I'm looking at right now, it's, it's unbelievable. So to destroy that is a sin. Now, I think the climate stuff has been totally hijacked by you know, the NGOs and the government to increase their power. So I'm skeptical of that. But the core concern of environmentalism, saving the environment, 
I am a radical on the subject. I'm really passionate about it. I mean it. And it begins with keeping things clean, not despoiling the environment. So I look at the border and I'm like, the Rio Grande is littered with dirty diapers. Does it, why am I the only person who's offended by this? Orderly, I mean, advanced countries, civilized countries are orderly and they're clean. People don't throw McDonald's out the window. They don't leave dirty diapers by the side of the river. I'm sorry, they don't. And so we don't have the moral courage to say that to people. You're totally welcome to come in our country. One rule about America is we pick up our shit. We don't leave it by the side of the road. Sorry, not allowed. We don't do that here. And I've spent, in contrast to a lot of people who talk about this, an awful lot of time in various countries around the world, poor countries. And I don't want to live like that. I want to live in a clean country. So, like, I don't know. That's, okay, I'm a Nazi for saying that. No, I'm an American. I don't want yeah. litter. I really don't. I mean it. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I dig that. Now, um, to your point about, you know, dad doesn't care about us anymore, but dad's social security is going to get paid by a younger population. And the American population is getting older. We're, you know, and the one way that people say we're going to save social security and Medicare is by having a younger population and having more children. Immigrants kind of oh. do that. Um, really? Why, why don't Americans do that? So that's good just question. More, you, you tell that. So that's just more corporate <clears throat> propaganda. So like basically, if you if you destroy people's lives, make it impossible for them to afford to get married and have children and make them so hopeless that they kill themselves with drugs or food or alcohol by the millions, which ours have. And then you look up, and you're like, I wonder why they're not having more kids. Because they can't afford to. That's why. So what's your solution? Well, just import desperate people from Guatemala, who, even if they're living 20 to a house, will still be living better than they did in Antigua. Uh -huh. If that's and your solution, like you and, literally hate your own people. And the meanwhile, like the all the biggest businesses in America are like donors to Planned Parenthood. Of course. They're, so of course. like, by like the, way, the idea. I just say one thing? I said yeah. this to Jason before. But this is like a rule that every viewer should just write down and put on the fridge. They can tell you they love you. But if they put abortion clinics in your neighborhood, they're lying. Because mm -hmm. if you love someone, by definition, you want that person to reproduce and have to, you want your children, to, you want your kids to have abortions? No, because you want grandkids because you love your kids. So this whole like, we love black people. Here are some more abortion clinics. Really? No. If you love people, you encourage them to have children. If you hate them, you don't. Disregard what people say, watch what they do. Okay, so on, on the point of, of abortion, in, two, in a 2017 profile in The New Yorker, you say that anti-abortion is your one political position that is non-negotiable. Um, <laughs> does that include cases of rape and incest? And should women who have abortions be subject to punishment? And the reason I ask that, of course, Donald Trump, in an interview, I believe, on NBC... He said that they should be subject to punishment. There are other people who have thought that. And so I'm just wondering what your position is. Can I, can I just say before Tucker answers that? I just, yeah. I want to, that, that, Tuck, that uh, Trump interview where he said that mm -hmm. was pretty revealing about Trump because it was like he had never had to grapple with this question before. Like right. It right crossed his <laughs> mind. Yeah. And he kind of took it to its logical conclusion, which is like most yeah. people think that abortion is an evil and that it shouldn't happen. So he kind of just sitting there not really thinking about any of the politics of it all was just asked like, hey, what about like the woman who takes makes that decision to abort that child? He's like, yeah, I guess there should be some punishment. Like he just like wrote it out without like no any focus grouping, like checking the polls, assessing like how people would respond to it. He just like went by gut instinct. But I thought it got to like an important moral point 
that like all of us just have to weigh is abortion good or is it evil? And I think most people come down on the side of evil. They just kind of decide like at what stage of gestation. So should women who have abortions there shouldn't be abortions. There shouldn't be rape. There shouldn't be. I'm against all of it. But Mm -hmm. you need to start out by acknowledging the obvious, which is it's taking the life of a child, a human child. And that's horrible. It's just horrible. And it's amazing the excuses that people make for it and the lengths they go to hide what's actually happening. Choice, fetus. No, everyone knows exactly what's happening. Do bad things happen? Of course they do. A lot of them, including the taking of human life. I'm also, by the way, opposed to war and the death penalty. I'm not for killing except in self-defense, period. But you have to ask yourself, why are people so committed to this one grotesque act? I mean, why is abortion the red line for the left? That's the one thing you can't do is criticize abortion. What is that about? And including even people who would never want an abortion or want their daughters to have an abortion because only women can have abortions because only women can get pregnant, just to be clear. But why are they so for this? And of course, they're for it because the taking of life is the one thing that only God's permitted to do. So basically, if you take that off the table and say, I'm not going to kill except in self-defense, which I think we all acknowledge is the one legitimate justification for it, then basically what you're saying is, I'm not God. Like there's a higher authority than me. But if you live in a society where people are unwilling to acknowledge that, then you have to be in favor of taking him. I'm, that's why, by the way, they're totally the same people who, are, who love abortion, Hillary Clinton and Kamala Harris and all the, the moral monsters who run our country. They're all totally for war. Have you ever noticed that? Like Hillary's like, well, we should, you know, we should just kill Gaddafi because he was he's annoying or, because we can. You know, another group of troops sent to Syria because we can't because we're God. Just the, the whole, the, oh, God, my back, well, here, here's the thing. I, I think the, the one thing that I will say here is that at least you are consistent on the fact that you're against death across the board. Yeah. Um, I think Why? that there, there are people uh, who were considered themselves part of the moral majority and all these Christian preachers, but they were willing an eye for an eye and they'd be willing to kill you. Uh, you know, and before the death penalty and other things, which we no know power. was racial, had racial imbalances to it and all of that. I guess. Talk about what, what, how, how do you feel about the racial imbalance in abortion? It's not rich white people having abortions. It's all black and Hispanic people having abortions. No, I don't I know mean, about all, but, you know, I, I it's definitely. Over, it's overwhelming. The majority of abortions are committed by the minority of the population. It's black and Hispanic. It's overwhelming. As you know, you've seen the numbers. So like, how do you feel? Yeah, about so I, I'll say this. Um, I do know that places like Planned Parenthood do other uh, things other than abortion. So um, do I think that having a Planned Parenthood in a neighborhood is all about abortion when they do mammograms and black women are more likely to die of breast cancer, oftentimes because they catch it at a later date when it's pretty much fatal? Some of my close friends have died. Their parents have died of of breast cancer. Do I do I think that having a Planned Parenthood that deals with some of those issues and those health issues for particularly for people who can't afford it in other ways, which is a problem? Oh, with, I mean, with Jeffrey our Dahmer did more than cannibalism, but that's not why we remember him. I mean, Planned Parenthood sure. is an abortion clinic that does other stuff. So the question is, are you comfortable 
with the wildly disproportionate rate of abortions among black women committed by Planned Parenthood. Why is that a good thing? How is no, that I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna weigh in on, on that one way or the Wait other. One, well, one thing I will say- How can it be for say, black people? Well, how can it be for well, black people if they're aborting their one thing I will say at a wildly is, disproportionate level? You know, if you're, if you're gonna be pro-life, and this is like what I said about you, you're, you at least are pro-life across the board. A lot of people, they don't care about issues that Vince and I have talked about on this show in terms of uh, black women dying during childbirth, black children much more likely to die before their first birthday. You never hear a peep from the from the pro-life crowd. But all of a sudden, well, abortion I mean, people, is racist, people you know, but there's so many I mean, other issues that could deal with life. Are, and you, but, but hold on. So. You don't have to be consistent on everything to be right about a thing. In other words, I don't know, John Brown was like a bad guy who killed innocents, but he was right about slavery. Slavery was immoral. John Brown made that point. That's why I remember, do you know what I mean? Martin Luther sure. King was like horrible to women, but he was right about segregation. Segregation's wrong. It's like, who can't? Okay, so Jerry Falwell was wrong about other things. I'm sure. I'm wrong about a lot of things. I'm sure. But like, there's no I defending. <laughs> I agree. Killing <laughs> children by the millions, and then no black leader says anything about. Like when I was a kid, Jesse Jackson was anti-abortion. Louis Farrakhan is still, to his great credit, whatever loony things he believes, he believes a lot of loony things, but he's totally right. It's fear for black people. You should not be for millions of black abortions. Like, how can you be for that? What's the answer? I, I tell because you, I, I don't think anybody is, is so for abortion, Tucker. Here's the thing. I don't as, as far as I know, I, I can tell you the people that I know. Yeah. Um, I don't know anybody who's for abortion. You know, really, I know a lot of people are for abortion. whether it's whether, you know, uh, it should be legal. Like, honestly, I, I don't even really weigh in on that discussion. But one thing I will say is I'm not I'm definitely not for abortion. I want to avoid abortion at all costs. I think everybody wants to avoid really? abortion at what all costs. You, you, you just said that a lot of families can't even afford more children. That's the Those are the problems that we need to address. And I think if we address the root causes of a lot of issues, then you won't have as much of the issue. So why is it that people are really? getting abortions? So my thing is, so wait, let's address those issues. Murder? So like, if I someone comes into your house and shoots you in a home invasion, you're like, that person shouldn't be prosecuted. We really need to address the root causes that drove him to shoot me in my living room. No, you'd be so, like, okay, yeah, root causes too, but you're not allowed to kill people except in self-defense, period. Like, right. it's just- I, th I think the, the, the disagreement from a scientific standpoint is when that person becomes a person. That's, that's the argument is that when it's a group as, as Dave Rubin, who we interviewed before, if anyone is interested and wants to look at our past interviews, uh, Dave Rubin said this cluster of cells that you have for the first, you know, 20 weeks, you know, before it has eyes and a heart and, you know, can live outside of the body up to that point, it's part of the woman's body. I think is the argument that people would make. It's a separate okay, so, body when it can live outside okay, of the womb. Okay, then let me ask. Let me ask. Would you be for a law again? Okay. Would you be for a law punishing anyone who aborts a child, either the mother or the physician who aborts a child who can live outside the womb? How is that not murder? Why shouldn't people be charged for it? I don't understand. Li living outside the womb? 
Yeah, there, there are thousands of abortions in this country every year of children who can live outside the womb. And oh, they're not. So I, I think that so uh, most. So why wouldn't uh, my, you start there? Like, my understanding is that that my understanding is that uh, late term abortion like that out with a fetus that can live outside of the womb is illegal in most places and exceedingly rare. Really? So, um, so I how think about if there, how about how many would bother you? How many kids you can live outside? Of course, of I, I'm not. I'm not for any of that. So if, why if a fetus it, can so live Bill outside Clinton, of the Bill out, outside of the womb? But oh, okay, oh, no, no one's actually against. If you're against, you'd be like, I'm sorry, you can't do that. Like that. That's murder. You know, I, and and oh. and I'm I'm with you on the fact that there should, in my opinion, there should be no abortion. This is my opinion. And I know, you know, some people will be upset with me for this. And I know a lot of people who feel like, oh, this is, you know, three men having a conversation talking about, you know, what's going on in women's bodies. I understand those uh, people wait, who wait, make wait. those Why claims. But, men, but, but let me finish. Why are men allowed to talk about this? All three yeah, of us no, are no, fathers. No, definitely. <laughs> let, let, let me just let me just say, I yeah. personally, if you're asking my personal opinion, because we're, we're doing Tucker Carlson today right now. Um, if you're asking my personal opinion, I definitely believe that there should be no abortion if a child can live outside the body. And, you know, that child is a viable, that's a child. You know what I mean? Uh, that's a child. It's different when it's a cluster of cells. I think that uh, those two things your, are, your are where people fall. Your party strongly disagrees with you. And, and, and we've had And you know what? You know, my party often disagrees with me. Right. <laughs> it just tells you something. Anyone who would defend something like that, and there are so many of them, up to and including Supreme Court justices, you kind of disqualify yourself for, you know, any judgment on anything, I would say. I got to go in a sec. I'm sorry because I'm, I'm having trouble standing. I've got a disc problem and I'm, I'm sorry to be a wuss about it, but I'm like. No, you're not no, being not a wuss. You've been, you've been tough as hell. We know how back pain is, and bro, we we love the fact that you've been with us for so long. Um, well, that's my but my fentanyl patch is wearing out, so I. <laughs> He's um, not doing it. Just so people know, there's no fentanyl involved. No, Come on, I know. I don't even take Advil, man. I'm against that stuff. Well, uh, Tucker, you know we we really appreciate your time and you, and the tolerance that you're enduring for the back pain that you've got to to spend some time with us. We really appreciate. Are that, you man. kidding? Jason okay. Nichols got me. I didn't even notice the fact that I'm like shrinking in inches as my spine compresses. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I hate talking about health in any way, but I. No, it's all. Right. I should have paid for tickets for this. I was. I felt. I felt like I had a front row seat. I was really happy to be here. <laughs> no, I mean it, it's great. I miss going on uh, Tucker's show and and. Uh, talk you gotta come on. Uh, you gotta we come always... on. We'll, we'll, uh, we can talk about Planned Parenthood and Black. No, I don't want to talk. About oh that man, let's, let's not talk about. Let's talk about anything else. No, I totally. I totally. <laughs> anything else? It, it is such a depressing topic that I'm never anxious to talk about it. I just feel a, an obligation to just be like the one guy in the media who's openly opposed to it. Just I don't know. I feel like I have to, but I agree. I hate talking about it. Okay, um, one last question. Yeah. Hit um, me. Uh, you stated in 2018 that terrorism, quote, terrorism is largely an immigrant phenomenon. Mm -hmm. However, from the day after 9-11 through 2017, foreign-born Muslim immigrants committed 43 out of 260,000 murders. That's 
Uh, also, in 2017, white supremacists committed 53% of extremist murders and right-wing extremists uh, between 2008 and 2017 were responsible for 71% of domestic extremist murders. In your book, you lament yeah, whites funny. being blamed for terrorism, but are very much willing to talk about immigrant terror, which is comparatively rare. Why is generalizing one group okay and the other not okay? Um, Islamic extremism in the United States, which did produce a lot of casualties and certainly in its effect made the country much less free. That's not Al-Qaeda's fault, that's our fault, but we wouldn't have a Patriot Act or a Department of Homeland Security. You wouldn't take your shoes off at the airport. These are all mm -hmm. attacks on the way we live on American society. None of that would have happened, um, I don't think, without foreign-born Islamic terrorism in the country. So if you're talking about Islamic terror, that's a foreign-born phenomenon, not exclusively, but mostly. And my view is on the question of immigration, you have a, not just a right, but an obligation to make certain that people who move to your country and live next to everybody else buy into your system, okay? They have to, they have to buy into the kind of American version of liberal democracy, the Bill of Rights. And if they don't, they can't come here. I don't know, that's not a, that's not a tough ask. That's kind of what I'm saying. As sure. for white supremacy being the greatest threat America faces, I mean, it's, it's so, those number, I mean, I, I could bore you for hours since I've done a lot of shows on this, but those numbers are a complete lie. The whole thing is bullshit. It's a figment of their imagination. That December, rather January 6th, they told us this was a white supremacist insurrection. To this day, though they put a ton of people in solitary confinement, took away their civil liberties, there's not been one hint of organized white supremacy having anything to do with that day or any other event in the past five years of national significance. Are there rights, white supremacist wackos hurting other people? I'm sure there are. I've never met one. I can't point to anything specific. I'm sure so you're saying that, that, that there weren't white supremacists at January 6th? No, no I, I don't know the personal views of everyone there. I'm I just mean, saying, some of them had t-shirts and flags and, and other things. Right. That I'm just saying, look, that. all I'm saying, I'm sure there were tons of wackos there. I've covered political demonstrations my whole life. Mm -hmm. They're all, I mean, who goes to a political demonstration? <laughs> People with strongly held political beliefs on both sides and some of them we'd call wackos. Yeah, exactly. No, of course I'm not saying that. I Me. wasn't there. I have no idea. But was it an expression, an operation carried out by organized white supremacists? No, it wasn't as a factual matter. We know because the Justice Department has told us that. So it was a lie, like so much of the rhetoric around white supremacy. And by the way, if we're gonna prosecute people for having certain beliefs, I think it's super important to define what those beliefs are. What is white supremacy exactly? Like specifically, what is white supremacy? How does it manifest itself? Like. Is it white supremacist to say, I believe in the SAT? I think we should hire people based on merit. I've been called a white supremacist for saying that. If you're calling that white supremacy, again, then we're not even having a conversation with language at this point. Right. It's just an attack that doesn't correspond to any knowable reality. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. Well, I think, the, again, the criticism of you, and, and I wasn't citing Angelo Carasone or, or any of those people, I, right? you I know, know uh, Chris mean, Hayes or, or any of them. Uh, but 
Is it Chris Hayes or what's the guy on MSNBC? Uh, hi, yes. Oh, the Rachel Maddow impersonator. I don't <laughs> yeah. that little guy. I don't know who. He, yeah. I, I don't know him. I, I'm not. I'm not criticizing oh, you, Chris Hayes either. or whatever. Uh, <laughs> I've never met the guy, but I'm just saying I'm not. I'm not quoting any of them or or um, what's uh his real name is Raphael. He does CNN now. He's got his own show. Um. <laughs> Jim Acosta, Jim Acosta oftentimes I'm talks about bit. you as a white supremacist. My, my thing is Jim Acosta is whiter than I am, as far as I know. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know. All I'm saying <laughs> is that I'm not arguing. The other thing. I'm like, not citing them. Jorge Ramos from the Spanish language network is blonde and blue eyed. And he would always come on my show and be like, that's sir, is white supremacy. I was like, really? You're the descendant of conquistadors from Europe who like killed the native population wholesale and you've got blue eyes and you're calling other people white supremacists. Or my favorite is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Her name is literally Cortez. And she's like, I'm a person of color. No. Oh, I disagree. See, you, I, 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 I disagree insane. there. But <laughs> my, but Tucker, funny. Tucker, funny. Tucker, my last name is Nichols. How did that happen? The same reason her last name is Cortez, you know, and no, she's a brown no person. Her family was a slave. This is ridiculous. Oh, Alexander that's Cassie not Cortez, true. Child of privilege who went to BU. Her dad ran an architecture firm. So I, I went to college. Does that mean my ancestors weren't enslaved? No, and when, when we talk about I'm white supremacists, I'm talking about what the white supremacists say about you. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has in no way been wronged by the American system. She's a beneficiary of it. She's a not very smart, hyper aggressive person with a flair for marketing. Who's Let's talk about you want to talk about the history of Puerto Rico and the Jones Act and, and what it's done to Puerto Rico. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is oppressed. No, she is a person of privilege who wields enormous power. So when you are that person, don't call yourself oppressed. That's all I'm saying. Whatever color you are, whatever your name is. I that's when Vince is like, well, how hard is it for you to be the subject of all this hate? I was like, actually, it's kind of life changing in a way that's bad really bad. But then I was like, wait, I have enormous privilege. I make a ton of money. I am successful by certain measures. Like I cannot whine as if I'm oppressed. I can't, I, can't, I keep reminding myself, I am not oppressed. I have power, acts like it. And that's yeah. like the main problem that I have with the ruling class is they've, they've amassed greater wealth and power than any class in human history. And they still claim to be oppressed. But see, Barack here's the Obama's thing, Tucker. wife is like, I'm Tucker. the victim of racism. Really? I, I, I agree with you. Here, here's the thing. I, I agree. I'm, I'm a privileged person. But my grandmother plunged toilets. I'm sure. So what I'm saying is I'm going to fight for people that remind me of my grandmother. My mother was yeah, from I'm the projects. I'm, I'm totally in favor of standing up. So for the toilet I recognize my own privilege. And that's exactly why I'm using. I want to use my privilege to help Cortez, those. When you criticize her and call her stupid or racist, which she is, you, she immediately whips around and is like, you know, you can't criticize me. I'm oppressed. It's like, no, honey. You're a member of Congress. You're not oppressed by definition. You have power. You are privileged. Stop pretending. Or Obama's wife. It's like it's mind-boggling to me. Oprah. Actually, I'm a victim. No, you're a billionaire. Yeah. A I don't victim. remember any of them saying that. But I'll say this: like understanding the privilege that you have is particularly for Black and Brown people makes it a responsibility for you to use that privilege to help others. That's literally 
what you were talking about that. with the Shaw district. I, I don't have a problem with that at all. And I, I kind of agree with what you're saying. I'm just saying that someone like Ocasio-Cortez is a tool of big companies. She's doing exactly the opposite. As independent businesses run in many cases by black and brown immigrants have been completely destroyed in the last year and a half. Right. She and all the people like her have sided with the big multinationals like Google and Facebook. Are you joking? Amazon. She went after, she was, didn't she? Wasn't she the one that went after yes, Amazon? She's the one, she did in a performative way. And when she did, I did a whole script, which I wrote myself, mm -hmm. complimenting her and saying, you go, AOC, you attack Amazon. I was totally for that. But in mm -hmm. the time since, she has completely absorbed this kind of silly ruling class lifestyle liberalism. I'm for black and brown people. I'm for working. You know, no, you are absolutely doing the bidding of the billionaire class. You are their right. Praetorian guard. You are on the side of the powerful against the weak. Obviously, how could you stand by when half a million people die of drug ODs in a single year and not say anything about it? What? Right. Talk about talk about the lowest of the low. Talk about people who actually are oppressed. All the jobs are gone from your town. I don't care what color you are. You're literally resorting to heroin at 25 and then you die in the men's room of an Arby's and nobody cares. You want to look for oppression? It's right there. Well, she was and a part of the whole she was a, a part of the whole defund the police push last year. <laughs> and we saw how many homicides rise, especially in. And black communities, it was just awful. And well, so well, in the end, in the end, she was part of a system that led to more vulnerable people being devastated, not fewer. No, that, that's that's actually surrounded by bodyguards, which we pay for, even yeah. as people who live in crappy neighborhoods are getting killed in higher numbers. Like, tell me she's on the side of the oppressed and the weak. No, she's a tool of the billionaire class. One hundred percent. Well, but I'll tell you the, the thing about uh, crime rising after defund the police. Uh, one of the things that we've seen, particularly they piloted programs where they don't call the police for the person that you're talking about at the Arby's. Instead of calling the police who don't know how to deal with some of those situations, people having mental health issues. You talked about those people that we have empathy for. Maybe we should treat them with something else other than with a law enforcement response, maybe with people that can actually help them. That's the but idea if you behind those it. People, and they but piloted, Jason, but Jason, they piloted you, that program. Hold on, hold on one second, Vince. Just okay. let, me, let me finish this statement. They, they piloted that program in New York and it's been largely successful. The other thing is that when you said that defund the police has correlated to higher crime, there have been states that have actually, or cities that have actually increased funding for policing. Like uh, I believe it's Tulsa, Oklahoma, and a, and a couple others that have actually increased or not defunded at all, and crime still went up. We've seen 2020 was uh, one of the highest and most violent years in our history. So we can't actually make it about but defund the not, police or not. But the idea, Whoa. but the alternatives to policing that you're talking about, if you ask people who actually live in these communities, vulnerable mm -hmm. people, what they want, they want cops. That, that, that comes out every single time they're asked about it. They want more police. They want more of a police presence because they don't want violence. Because when crime enters these communities, poverty follows. Like nobody wants to, we just saw how many, I saw a chain store this week, like some CVS or whatever. They shut down tons of chain stores in an area that was very violent. And they attributed that violence and the shoplifting to the reason that they were leaving the community. And the effect of that is the jobs disappear, the resources disappear, the consumer goods disappear. So of course they want good but, policing. But over-policing does exactly what Tucker was just talking about earlier. It leads to the destruction of families. It leads to over-incarceration. 
it leads to those families being broken up, no husbands in those, in those households, no fathers for children. That's exactly what it leads to. You want to talk about- that's crazy. Look, I, I don't think, so, look, I'm super open-minded. I wrote a book on crime once 30 years ago. I think it is pretty complicated actually. And I do think there are abuses. I was a police reporter, I've seen them. On the other hand, you know, you got to tell kids like you're not allowed to steal shit. You can't. You're not allowed to steal stuff. You can't be out at night with a gun. You can't shoot people because you're mad. And like nobody's telling kids that. And I'm not like who's responsible. I mean, honestly, at a certain point, it's like there's just a lot of bad parenting going on. It doesn't at some point, it doesn't kind of matter whether you send the police or some hyper trained social worker. If if your people letting their kids run around at night with guns. Doesn't have, I wouldn't let my kids do that. You wouldn't let your kids do that. Like at a certain point, you have to blame the moms. Like, why are they allowing that? Honest, honestly, like what what people are stealing openly from stores? Like, why would you ever put up with that? Why would you ever say that's okay? This whole patronizing, well, they're black. It's all right. We can't. No, it's not okay. It's not okay to steal. Yeah, it's never I, okay. I, period. I don't, yeah, and it, I, I don't. It's mostly, yeah, whatever. Anyway, I just think we shouldn't put up with that shit because society falls apart when we do. Everyone knows this. It's yeah. super obvious. Yeah. I bet your grandparents wouldn't put up with it. I bet if you were like, oh, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go to Walgreens and like steal laundry detergent, they'd like smack you in the head and be like, no, you can't. You didn't, you know what I mean? You're allowed to steal. Like it's not hard to restore order. You just have to want to, I think. All yeah, right, no, well, I, I think in, and one of the ways you do that is if you are able to uh, have two parents in the household. I agree. Uh, people aren't working three jobs with, with three kids on their own. And over-policing is one way that actually destroys a lot of the fabric of the things that, that you value, Tucker. That's, that's all I'm saying. So but the police are never called. I live in a town that doesn't have police, if I'm being totally. There are no police because it's mm -hmm. too poor to afford it. No police, not one cop. There's state police. It takes a long time for that. But people don't need police because they're. I don't think you should say that publicly, though. <laughs> you know? well, we're, we're pretty heavily armed at my house, but I would just say, um, you know, like why is that? People don't need police because people aren't actually. There's only one store in my town, but they're not stealing everything in it, and they're not shooting each other when they get drunk, and like the behavior itself is the problem. That's not an attack on anybody. It's just true. Every group. Every person is capable of following basic laws. Don't steal. Don't commit unjustified violence. Clean up your shit. Like, I don't know why it's so controversial to say that because patronizing ruling class dingbats like AOC, who ultimately are nihilists and don't want the society to continue in the first place, say it's somehow wrong to tell people don't steal. How about this? Don't steal. And if you steal, we're going to punish you because you didn't. It's not yours. Well, right? it defeats I mean, the predicate. Did she, it I mean, did she say it, that, wait, though? I mean, but I, the I reason for her ever saying that the reason no. for something course, like that, make, though, she's definitely said it. She made excuses for the looting. She's like, this is what happens when people don't have enough. Really? No, people have enough brightly colored plastic crap from China in this country. Material want is not our problem. I mean, Honestly, it defeats so the when you say things problem. like that, when you say things like that, the whole point is to defeat the predicate of of uh, justifying the expansion of your power. And in the case of AOC or the expansion of government. So, you know, if families, if families can, if families can, um, can step in, can, can, if communities can resolve this for themselves, then your, ju the justification for your existence and giving you power is gone.
And yeah. so, so she, that can't be allowed. That can't be, you and can't. It's not just, her, can't fault. It's not just but, her fault. The people who run all of our institutions yeah. have decided to just lay down and die. There's this weird suicidal impulse, not just in this country, but throughout the Anglosphere, in the UK, New Zealand, Canada, Australia, where these societies have decided they can't defend themselves against disorder. They won't stand up for the values that made them successful in the first place. They just lost their will to live. And it's really distressing to watch, but I don't share that. Like, I actually like our society. I believe in our society. I, I've been grateful to live in it for 52 years. I don't want to give it up. I don't want to replace it with Chinese style authoritarianism. I don't have super complicated views or some weird, creepy vision of an ethno state. I hate all that shit. I just want to live in America in 1985. Yeah, there are problems. There are inequalities. I get it. There are everywhere. But it's basically a functional, happy society where people have the promise of doing better than their parents did. That's yeah. all I want. Well, it, did, do you remember? Black communities in 1985, like very, very it was well. kind of it was kind of fucked up, honestly. Well, I lived um, in a majority black city in 1985. Actually, yeah, and so, so I, you I, remember, I, you remember Washington very, DC in very 1985. Well. And then actually, it got a lot better. Ten years later, a lot better, and it wasn't perfect, but it wasn't on the brink of cold. It'll never be perfect. You know, the best you can do is try to improve things, but it wasn't on the brink of collapse at all. And now it is. And so the only thing you can do to fix it is just exert a will to live, to continue yeah. I, with the simple things. I mean, yeah, I, I would submit that you are safer walking in any city in America right now when we're when violence is spiking. You're safer than you were in 1985. And also, the only thing that I'll say, Tucker, um, I don't, that's an interest. That's an interesting question i don't know if that's true or not but it's not a crazy point like it was a, yeah. people who weren't alive then don't remember you're right it was a pretty dangerous country for sure yeah 1980 i mean you know of course we had um the government's involvement i would argue uh in the cocaine trade and crack cocaine and what that did to communities and the subsequent over policing because people including people in the black community so vince you're correct asked for more policing and that did nothing but destroy the community even worse. So I, I, I'll just say that I think that the fundamental element of what people like Bernie Sanders, the reason why I supported Bernie Sanders is they're thinking people do need health care. And that doesn't matter if you're rural, you know, you're someone in rural Maine or in rural Massachusetts or in rural Oklahoma or you are in Boston, in Roxbury, in Harlem, in West Baltimore. Like these are fundamental things that are fundamental rights that people need. Um, and should people work? And do people need to work, people who are physically able? Absolutely. I also think the discourse doesn't really improve if we don't talk to one another and calling AOC stupid doesn't do anything to expand the discourse. Like we need to sit down with AOC. I doubt AOC is going to come on our show, but sit down with people like AOC or come on your show either. Um, but it'd be good if we could actually get down and talk about our views and actually present this to the American people in I open tried. form and let them choose. They're not they're Yeah. I, I think it's, I got to go in two seconds, but I would just say, yeah, I know. I don't think there's any evidence the American people are choosing anything. You know, they didn't choose to stay in Afghanistan for 20 years. They didn't want it. They didn't choose yeah. to open the border. They don't want it of any color. They don't want it. They didn't choose to 
you know, let Walgreens get looted to the point where all the Walgreens close in San Francisco. They don't want that. Nobody wants any of this crap. And so you really have to ask deeper questions about is the system responding to voters? Is it truly democratic, small d democratic? And I don't see any evidence that it is at all. And I, I, it pains me, it kills me to say that, but I, I just don't see on the big questions that people are not getting what they want, not just in one specific case, but generationally over decades. Like, what does that tell you? It tells you yeah. it's, it's, not, it's not working the way it was advertised at all, like at all. Yeah, you I know, think we've reached a point. Yeah. It once. Talk uh, I, I think we've reached a point we can all agree. I, I think yeah, that's on that one. Well, we agree. We thank you so much. And we thank oh, you back for holding up. I'm sorry to wuss out. I just need a. No, no, totally. I need to, I need to reach my acupuncturist immediately. Best <laughs> <laughs> so. of luck, man. Thank you, Tucker. Hey, thank, thank you, you so much, everybody. Uh, tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to uh, Vince and Jason Save the Nation. We're on all podcast platforms. We're on YouTube. We're on Facebook Watch. Check us out. Also, of course, like he needs our promo from our seven viewers. Check out Tucker Carlson tonight. Maybe one day, maybe he'll invite me back, but I don't know. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, keep supporting us here at the Daily Caller. Check out Joe Bob's show, Joe Bob Live, excuse me, Daily Caller Live with Joe Bob. That's Check right. out Hookstead show as well on sports. Uh, and we're doing a lot of good things here. Of course, the person who started it all was with us today, Tucker Carlson. We're, we're really grateful for you spending this time. Well, with I'm us. grateful for it. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you, you, Tucker. See ya. <laughs>